America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through the Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was the first night I stayed with my friend's round-down apartment in the slum of Harlem. <laughs> and even more surprising was the day after October 31st when little people were in masks and ring doorbells and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I thought to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love, we would live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> As an only son uh, raising a traditional Chinese family, I thought being loyal to my parents was very important, more important than my wife. So I never emotional left my parents and cleaved to Angela. At the beginning, I tried to please both sides, but ended up pleasing no one. Angela felt unloved because I was not fully devoted to her. And uh, so, and my father was well-liked, but very passive. So I never learned how to become a loving husband. And without Jesus Christ, I did not know the biblical principle of how to sacrificially love. Things progressively get worse and worse. After years of unresolved issues, our marriage was a disaster. So after the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. I never imagined that I would get a divorce. Since I was a little girl, I dreamed of belonging to a loving and caring family. While dating in college, Leon treated me like a princess. But my parents disapproved of our dating. Since I refused to end our relationship, my mom slapped my face for the first time in my life. However, I still consider our love to be true and everlasting. As soon as I finished college, I came to the U.S. for graduate school. But I decided to give up my full scholarship to get married instead. I also found a full-time job so Leon could concentrate on getting his Ph.D. My parents were furious. Leon and I faced tremendous pressure and expectations from our parents on both sides. Especially since Leon was an only son. And I felt as if he had become a totally different person. I cried through many sleepless nights. For years, I endured this for the sake of our two young sons. 
Liang was laid off from his first job and went back to school. So I worked the night shift, providing the only source of income until Liang completed his PhD and doctorate in dentistry. Then we devoted our energy building a thriving dental clinic. On the outside, we had it all. A comfortable new house in the suburb of Chicago. Two luxury cars. Several invest, real estate investment. A husband with two doctorates. And both son in dental school. But I was miserable. Depressed. Lonely. And felt like a total failure. My dream of becoming, at, uh, belonging to a loving and caring family became more and more distant as the years went by. So finally, we began the paperwork for a divorce. I didn't think things would get any worse, but I was wrong. In the same year, on May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year at University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He came home and made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, therefore I did not work as a team with my wife to face this tremendous challenge. Not only I did not comfort her, but I also accused her for making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife's response is completely different. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I thought I could threaten him with an automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of his death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. I fell to the floor in shock and anguish. My body was numb and as cold as ice without any relatives or a church family. I had no one to turn to. In desperation, I went to the phone book and radio, hoping to find help, but there was none. In my mind, not only had my husband refused to stand by me, but also Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope, 
as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I left home, not telling Leon where I was going or what I was doing. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train to Louisville, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train I began to read a pamphlet which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart, and I realized just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. I then look out the window and marvel at the beauty of nature. The fields extend in every direction and seem to have no end. I had been an atheist all my life, but for the very first time, I noticed the wonders of creation, and I knew that there must be a God. One of my favorite verses today is Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Even though everything around me proclaimed the work of his hands, I had suppressed the truth of God for 51 years. I was without excuse. There is a God. I can't remember if anyone else was on the train with me, but it seemed as if I was there all along. I lost sense of time as I sat there in perfect peace. Then a still, small voice. You belong to me. All my life, I longed to belong to somebody. First, my parents. Then, my husband. Finally, my children. But God, who knew my deepest need, told me that I belonged to him. Those four words from God were healing balm to my shattered heart. Although I was not seeking God, I was found by my loving creator. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number on the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady in Louisville who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. I had never heard of a Bible bookstore. So when I, brought, when I was brought to one, I was like a little girl in the candy store. Along with the Bible, 
I read Christian book after Christian book, from morning to night. I rent an extended stay apartment. And my time in Louisville was like a private retreat. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. Another one of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave His love, loved me, and gave Himself for me. After six weeks, I received a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited and told me, "Your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ." I was not pleased, and I told her. This is not good news. This is my worst nightmare. Because from now on, she has God on her side. <laughs> But what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every day of the week. She spent hours each morning in her prayer closet. Reading her Bible and praying, her faith was vibrant and alive, and it impacted every aspect of her life. What Angela had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know that God was also work on me. I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to BSF Bible Study Fellowship, where we begin to learn and know, grow deeper in our understanding of and love for God and His Word. It was while studying the Bible that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue that kept our marriage together by, as a one flesh, by drawing us closer together to Him. This was God's way for preparing both of us for the difficult years ahead, as Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. For my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did: obey your parents, do well in school, and, of course, practice piano. <laughs> you see, I never fit in with the other American boys, obviously because I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music and of sensitivity, and Satan, who can't take away those God-given gifts, can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having same-sex attractions was when I was nine years old. After I came across pornography at a friend's house, and at that young age, without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, today pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, women and men. 
Many of us do not know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect ourselves, our family, and our children from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There are a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries, such as the major television networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC. Their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports, hockey, baseball, football, baseball, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up these two industries, major television networks, major league sports, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we are losing miserably. Even scarier, some statistics. Statistics say that 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet, often by accident when doing their homework. Even scarier, 1 out of 5 children aged 10 to 17 have received a sexual solicitation over the internet by a sexual predator, and often these children had no idea and didn't think anything was wrong. So what can be done? What we advocate is something that we call double internet protection. That's having an internet filter and an accountability program. An internet filter blocks when questionable sites um, are viewed, and an accountability program logs in when questionable sites might get through the filter. The two programs that my parents and I use on our computers can be found at these two websites. K9WebProtection.com and X3Watch.com. So you all, if you don't have filters or anything on your computer, you can get out your pen and paper and write this down because I'm giving you some homework. I hope that by the end of today, everyone in this room who owns a computer will have a filter and accountability program on their computer. Both of these are free, so there should be nothing holding you back. There's some great programs that you pay for um, and uh, that... Of course, I think the paid one's probably a little better than that, such as Safe Eyes, Net Nanny, Covenant Eyes. Those are great programs. Uh, but if, if you're maybe, you know, strapped for money or, or, or if you're still deciding on what to use, at least put this on your computers and put it on your children's computers. And men, can I challenge you? Let your wife put the password on the filter. Because, amen, ladies? Because if garbage goes in... Garbage is going to come out. Did you know we live in a hypersexualized world? There are more adult bookstores in the U.S. than there are McDonald's. Did you also know that media, of course, it's good, but also along with media comes a lot of garbage that we don't need to take in. Steven Spielberg, the, uh, the great movie producer, he doesn't even allow his children to watch movies. And Bill Gates, the Microsoft guru, he only allows his children to be on the internet for 45 minutes a day, and that's it. And how often do we allow our children to have un, uh, you know, just unlimited access to media without... Uh, going through and, and limiting that. What is it that they knew, and they're not even Christian, uh, that they know but we're not implementing? Also, I believe strongly that we have to talk openly and frankly about sex from a biblical perspective. Because if we don't talk about sex, 
and inform our children about that, guess what? Most certainly the world will. And they will give our children a distorted view of sex. And wouldn't it be great if our children first heard about sex within the home, within a Christian context, as opposed to hearing it in the locker room or on the playground or in public school? So with pornography fueling my same-sex attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, and even the Marine Corps Reserves. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. Spending most of my free time in the gay clubs, I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, but without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. You see, I thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But four months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew down from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. Because isn't that what any good Chinese parent would do? Well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school makes. Well, I was not very happy about that decision. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. Each time, at the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know, he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. I called him frequently, but I never get his phone call back. I would leave messages, but he never called me back. Once he even told us, if I ever mention God or Bible, we will never see him again. We thought Christopher might come home for the holidays if we bought him a plane ticket. On Christmas Eve, I went to O'Hare Airport to pick him up. That was before 9-11, when people still can go to the gate and greet their guests. I stood there peering down the jet bridge 
in anticipation for Christopher. As the arriving passengers came into view, my heart leapt with excitement, but then dropped in disappointment when each time I realized that it was not Christopher. One by one. I watched the travelers reunited into the arms of their loved ones while I stood there all alone. When the last person came off the plane, then I knew Christopher was not on the plane. So I drove home and came back several hours later for the next flight, only to repeat what had happened hours before. Our son, Christopher, was now returning. In tears, I drove back home alone. Since Christopher would not come to us, we went to him. In July, we flew to Atlanta, but on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered to give him my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left on the counter anyway before I walked out the door. We found out later that as soon as we left, he threw, took my Bible and threw it into the garbage can. It was more than obvious he is totally unreachable and completely hopeless. We knew that it's going to take a God-sized miracle to turn things around. So my wife prayed a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. As hopeless as things were, we committed not to focus on the hopelessness but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church and from the BSF Bible Study Fellowship Group, we cry out to God for Christopher. In addition, my wife Angela fasted Every Monday for seven years, and once fasted 39 days for our son. She will literally spend hours in her prayer closet each morning on her knees, praying for Christopher and others, and study the Bible. Angela wrote out many of her prayers, and the following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor. Don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son. 
nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, I give you my fears and tears, as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expect. His answer for me was, "Wait, be still, and know that I am God." As I look back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher; the change was in me. And my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, "We are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace." As we live out those years of waiting. We learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace, as God drew us to Himself each and every day. Often, answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. Because she knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father, and a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were twelve federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling all my friends. You know those type of friends that say, "Whenever you need something, just give me a call." Those friends that got me more into trouble than they were any good for me. Well, little did I know, my mother knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one person answered my collect call. So, you mothers, beware of your prayers; they're gonna come true. <laughs> so, I was down to the bottom of the list, home, and I did not want to make that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was gonna get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, "Son, are you okay? No condemnation." No berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, 
that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his anger. It's not his wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears she knew she had to do, just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them, one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she hung up that phone, she ripped off a little piece of adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before, (laughs) and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and taping more pieces of adding machine tape to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block and honestly trying to stay clear away from those nasty criminals, because of course, I didn't think I was a criminal. And as I was walking around the cell block, I passed by this garbage can and I saw the trash coming out of the can. I thought, this represents my life right now. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was on my way to become a doctor. I had it made. And yet now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over. I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that good book. And for the very first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I did not think that this was going to be the answer to all my problems. I thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me, and immediately I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to running something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. 
I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison. But this news of HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief, like a knife told on my broken heart. Endlessly, I stumbled up the steps. My legs lost their strength. With one arm against the wall, I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as my stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul.
it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You may be seated. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was lying in my bed and I noticed in the metal bunk above me something scribbled. It said, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, He still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. Wish I could say I got down on my knees, said the sinner's prayer, and everything was perfect after that. But that's far from the truth. God was convicting me in my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, he completely delivered me from that. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I was reading the Bible, I couldn't get around the fact that God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across those passages which seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a prison chaplain and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this prison chaplain actually told me that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from a shelf, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So naturally, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And let me tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against homosexual behavior. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification for homosexuality, looking for anything, looking for justification for for monogamous, consensual, adult homosexual relationships. I never found any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word to live as a gay man by allowing my feelings to dictate who I was, or abandon homosexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. My feelings should not dictate who I was. See, I told myself before that God loves me unconditionally, but he doesn't want me to change. But I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should not be defined just by my feelings. My identity should not be defined just by my sexuality. My identity is not gay, homosexual, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. See, I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But actually, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. He said, be holy, for I am holy. And God was telling me, don't focus so much upon your feelings or your temptations or your sexuality, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change, it's not the absence of struggles, but change, it's the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Let me say that again. Change, it's not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not my temptations, not my sexuality, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and this life of obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home collect to my parents, and I told them of my interest to go to Bible college after prison, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, which is here in our hometown, Chicago, called Moody Bible Institute. But then they were silent on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application to me into prison. I quickly filled it out, did the essays, did the questions until I got to the end where they asked me for references, not from just anybody, but specifically from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody Bible Institute. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, working on my doctorate of ministry now at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, and um, God, uh, and I had the honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, which we have out available in the lobby. And God has such a sense of humor, because along with our speaking ministry around the nation, around the world, God has brought me back to Moody teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. Only God can do that. Only God. But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. This Advent season... We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He came to seek and save the lost. His love was so extravagant that he put his body up upon that gruesome cross to die for me and to die for you. Not so that we would simply go to the grave forgiven sinners, but that on the third day he would rise again so that we might live. This Advent season, as around us there's materialism and and all this festivity, let us remember the greatest gift of all. And that's the precious babe Jesus who entered our world left heaven for us so that we would live new lives thank you